Hey, Matt. Hey, Dave. I have to tell you something Please. right out the gate. Um, this is hard to say. I'm gay. Matt, is that true? It's true. Oh, my God. That's so funny that you say that. Why? Because I'm gay, too. Are you kidding me? I am, no, I'm not kidding you. I would not I would not joke about something like that. God, that feels good to get it, it out. It does. Mm. I'm in honor of National Coming Out Day, which yep. we're a couple days behind. But it's it's National Coming Out Week. Sure, we can stretch it out, as boring people do with their birthdays you wrote for a, a, whole, a whole week. You wrote a beautiful piece on Esquire about Thank you. coming out. Thank you. Um, and can you share that with the people maybe? Is there an abbreviated version? Sure. Of story? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a story that kind of pops into my head. Um, yeah, it was in, the, it was like 1992 and I was in the middle of coming out and I had my first sort of few gay friends. I would like, I would, I would, I had just got in a car and I would drive into Boston and I would go to like, there, there were these three clubs that were right by Fenway Park and on Sunday nights they would break down the, the door, like the walls between, they wouldn't break down the walls, but yeah, they yeah, would yeah. like retract the walls between them and it would become a massive gay club for everybody in New England and, you know, so you, you I would meet a ton of people. Yeah. Everyone I met was 26 and everyone was like just about to come out. Yeah. So I, like I had sort of a group of gay friends for a while and, and one weekend we decided to go uh, to Provincetown. And and so we met like near my friend Scott's uh, apartment, but like not in it because it was like, you know, because we were we all had stories for how we had met, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and then like so as we were waiting for Scott to come and pick us up, we were in, you know. Whatever, like the the goofy store with the you know sexy dice or whatever, you know, just yeah, like the, yeah, the, the gay uh, paraphernalia, yeah, the yeah. gay Spencer gifts yeah. that exist in any any gay neighborhood, and uh, and there was like um, uh, a, a pink triangle like bumper magnet, not a sticker, but like a magnet, so you could like if you don't want to fully commit to a to a sentiment, you can do the bumper magnet, yeah, and we're like, oh, this is we're gonna put it on Scott's car, we're gonna put it on Scott's car, and we're really gonna like, oh, that's gonna be we're hilarious. gonna get, yeah, we're gonna play such a joke on him, yeah. and like, and so we did, and it was like, and he didn't see it until later, and it was like, you guys, why would you, and like, you know, anybody would have been angry to have the pink triangle on their car, but the joke of it was like, it made us all look gay, which we were, yeah, which we were, and literally driving to fucking Provincetown, yeah. Listening but at the to, time, that's a hilarious prank. Oh, my to, God. Yeah. yeah, because it was like it, the idea of being gay was funny yeah. to actual gay people yeah. because we, we'd been raised to think of ourselves as the jokes of evolution. You know what I mean? It's just like it's sad, the shit that you're raised with. That's why we're doing this show. That's why. That's why we're doing this show, to get this stuff out. You know what I mean? To have these conversations that we don't have with each other. Yeah. You know, just yeah. really break them down. I'm so happy we're doing this, Me Matt. Too. And we've had phenomenal guests up to this point. Oh God! I mean, I want to brag on uh, please on Sam J. Yes, who's gotten herself a writing gig on Saturday Night Live. That's true. And don't I'm think so that glad show. we snagged her before she flew the coop. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and the show is visibly better already. Yeah, she's fantastic. Uh, we've had a real all-star cast. Who else have we had? Um, oh God, uh, Elliot Glazer. Elliot Glazer, Cameron Esposito, Brian Guy Safi. I mean, phenomenal all names. The greats. Mm-hmm. Riley Silverman just recently. Uh, if you're just joining us, go through our library. Welcome. Uh, welcome. Are we at 10? Are we at 10 episodes yet? I is think this we're getting there. Is this 10? Is this lucky oh number 10? Oh my God. Producer Dana says it is. We wow. are also going to have coming up, uh, we have uh, the filmmaker Stephen Beresford. Uh-huh. We've got uh, Joel Kim Booster, oh. Louis Vertel. So just the leading lights of our, of, our, uh, yeah. of our community. All of them. Yeah. Uh, so you'll note, I, for the listener, uh, I have an array of beverages in front of me. Uh, yeah, you do. Yeah. Uh, this podcast, uh, aside from from great LGBT people having good, deep conversations, will also serve as an account of my descent into addiction uh, <laughs> to cold brew. I Not just cold brew. Well, it started with just cold brew. Okay. 
Uh, because here at Earwolf, there is cold brew on tap. And you pour it, and it looks like a Guinness, and it's very yeah. inviting. And, and then you have three sips, and you're nitro wired Nitro cold tits. brew, yeah. to be specific, which is infused with nitrogen, which sounds bad for you, and it probably is. Yes, of course it is. Of course it but is. But it will gank you up real good. Real good. Yeah. And then on the way, uh, I stopped by Rubies and Diamonds just down the street for something mm-hmm. called a coconut sea salt cold brew, which is a thing that I uh, – that is that is the next step in addiction. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is, this is fully – Gas station meth. And what's what? Are, what are we working in in there? I don't know. It's cold brew and something that is delicious. And for like the third time in less than a week, I got myself a large and had three sips and just ingested all of the sugar. Wow. Uh, and, and so now I'm just dealing. Take off. Uh, yeah, I really am. I'm just kind of I'm vibrating. And then there's just water. I'm and then there's so just water for when I because I'm really trying base. to control my caffeine intake, and so mm-hmm. I have like a little baby shot of the nitro before. Mm-hmm. But then I see what you're working with over there; it looks yeah. so tempting. Literally in 25 minutes, I'm going to be asleep under the table. Oh, it's not God. good. How was your week, Matt? How was your coming out week? Oh my God, what a week! You know, this week um, I, I was reminded of in college. I had so one of my best friends from college, Julia Sullivan. Shout out to Bun Bun. Uh, she you was didn't actually call her Bun Bun. That is one of her, her many nicknames. But uh-huh. she was one of the first people I came out to um, in the cafeteria when I was really struggling to say it. And by the way, I, I was I, I went to NYU, which I only mentioned because it is literally the gayest place on. You are gay until proven straight there. But uh-huh. for whatever reason, I was struggling with saying it, even though it was very obvious to everyone who knew me. And um, and so I was like, we were in line for like stir fry together <laughs> with our trays, and I was like, I'm just gonna say it. I I have to tell you something. Okay, I'm like, and but I was having trouble. And she goes, Okay, if could you say this um, if you spelled it in in, in five letters, uh-huh. which I struggle with. And she was like, No, no, no. I sorry. If if you use a contraction, and I was like, I, Oh yes, yes, exactly. Yes, <laughs> yeah. thank you for doing that that work for me. So. And sure, I think that night we went back to my dorm room and I called my mom and I was like, hey, um, I left a bunch of CDs at home when I when I came to school. Will you send me them? And she was like, well, let me go through them and see which ones you want. And she's on speakerphone, I think. And so Julia can hear her. And so she's sorting through my CDs because I had what I had brought to college was my radio head, my U2, my Beastie Boys, Dave Matthews, you know. All things that I did like, yeah. but then my mom is rattling through these CDs, and it was literally like Madonna, 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 <laughs> Janet Jackson, Paul Abdul, Wilson Phillips, Wilson Phillips, Debbie Gibson. And uh, I said, you know what? Send them all. Yeah. Send them all. I'm free. Yeah. I'm free to listen to them. And she did. My freshman year of college, um, one of the first purchases that I made when I went to the uh, the Worcester Mall, whatever the Worcester Mall was, um, was uh, the Liza Minnelli album that was produced by the Pet Shop Boys. Uh, wow. It was called Results. It came out oh, in the yes. fall of 1989. Oh, my God. I forgot all about this. Yeah. So – and I had two roommates and and like – and there were kind of rumors about me from the very beginning uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which <laughs> was the Liza Minnelli cassette in <laughs> That'll the room. That'll do it. Um, and then yeah, later, like later, like maybe even at a reunion – like once I was sort of out, I yeah. bumped into those guys, and uh, and it, like you know the, the subject turned to uh, to me being gay and shit, and they uh, and they were like, well, you know, we did kind of, I mean, yeah. you did bring home a Liza Minnelli cassette, and my defense was like, oh no, I mean that was that was produced by the Pet Shop Boys, and then the minute it was out of my mouth, it was like, no, that is yeah, not no. 
that is not a, that does not make it less gay. No. <laughs> that in fact makes it ten times more gay. Yeah, you just put a gay exclamation point on yeah, yeah, your uh, coming yeah, out process. Yeah, I, yeah, I kind of did. Oh, we were so oh, dumb. God, learn from our mistakes. Kids. Hey, speaking of learning, yes. I uh, finally watched the Marsha P. Johnson documentary on Netflix. Oh, yeah, what'd you think? It was uh, incredible. Right. I mean, not a uh, happy ending to be found no. in that story. Um, not a real uplifting, um, you know, experience. But, I, 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 you know, I, I hate to use the word, but important. It's so important. It is. Learn no your history. Ever. Learn your history. It is entertaining. It is entertaining, but it's very entertaining. Uh, To me, the the standout, the breakout star of it is Victoria Cruz, who's Mm -hmm. the woman that you're following. Yeah. If you haven't seen the documentary, she is uh, a a trans activist who is kind of – she's on a mission to figure out what happened to, you know, Marsha P. Johnson, who Uh was like a trans drag queen legend. Um, And Victoria is like – you know, getting up there, uh-huh. she's walking with a cane. She's got like the wildest fashion sense where she's like um, just a lot of layers and like like weird like Native American headpieces and uh-huh. stuff. Kind of the Francis Conroy milky eye. Yes. A little yeah, bit. Yeah. So she's already got her like her super sleuth like um, – you know how like every yeah. Agatha Christie detective has like a little quirk. Yeah, she's got her. She's got she's like got she's hers. got the one good eye, and she yep. looks at things real closely. And she, what a role that's going to be oh, for somebody! God, a fascinating character. And she does the thing where she has glasses, but she has to like look underneath them when she reads and yeah. everything. And um, yeah, it's a real doozy. Which, by the way, I should shout out the podcast Making Gay History um, right. because. A lot of the people that you're well, – I mean one of the great things about the documentary is you're seeing all of these like founders of the movement you've never even heard of. Right. And they're all, you know, getting up there. And um, and these are old folks who do not look like our parents or our grandparents. Mm-hmm. You know, like these are people who have been living out loud for long before we came along. And um, anyway, I bring up Making Gay History because he interviews a lot. He, you know, he's got Sylvia Rivera. He has an interview with Marsha and with um, yeah. that – kooky guy that was her roommate uh-huh. uh, slash keeper or whatever he was. Yeah. Um, it's really, really good. Yeah. Okay. Was, I've I'm listened sold. to it and sobbed in the car many times. Mm. You know what I loved about uh, the, the Marsh P. Don- Johnson documentary was that they like bought a building on 13th Street yeah. or something and, and like used it to house trans youths who'd been kicked out of their home. That, I mean, I mean the idea that like two trans women on money that they made doing what? I have no idea. Uh, could just like buy or at least squat in and yeah. call their own a building on yeah. 13th Street in New York City that now is like some oil chic owns it and that's where he stores yeah. his motorcycles yeah. or whatever. Like no human being is ever going to go in there. It's somebody – it's Jerry Seinfeld's car elevator. It's something. <laughs> yeah. But like at the time, they could just go in and be like, no, we're just going to – there's going to be a transitional housing facility yeah. for trans youths. Yeah. Jesus, where can that even happen in this country anymore? Watch Marsha P. Johnson, my Watch friends. It, guys. While you're on Netflix, you Ooh. might also have a notion uh-huh. to watch an, uh, a new Irish movie that has just gone on to uh, to Netflix. It's called Handsome Devil. You might want to just hit pause, watch that whole movie now. Yep. So that we can all talk about it openly. And while you're at it, maybe hit pause, pause. Also go back, watch the movie called 
The Bachelor Weekend? Yes. Yeah. Formerly known as Stag. Formerly known as Stag outside of the U.S., I exactly. should say. They don't trust it's, us to know what a Stag is in, yeah. in America. But watch Handsome Devil. It is on Netflix. It is absolutely charming. Yep. And Both the, of those films are by our incredible guest. Yeah. Writer and director John Butler is coming up. Oh, baby, baby. Welcome back to Homophilia. Here I'm he Holmes. comes. I'm Matt McConkey. Mm-hmm. Our guest this week, I'm just so delighted about uh, because I am a fan, mm-hmm. and also I consider him a close friend. He's a a writer, a director, uh, a superstar in the making, and an Irishman. His name is John Butler. John Hello. Butler. Hello. How are you? Uh, superb. Really? Yeah, sensational. Good. Yeah, making no mistakes. Good. Mistake-free day <laughs> yeah, so far. Absolutely living a perfect life. Great. Um, thank you for asking. Good. You look really well. You actually look really sun-kissed compared to the first time I met you. Every time I come to LA, I commit so hard to fitness and being outdoors Yeah. that I'm yeah. utterly transformed. And then I go home, my folks are like, wow, you look really good. And then within three weeks, I've put on four stone <laughs> and they're like... Would you ever think about going back to L.A.? <laughs> yeah. Perhaps you should just live there all the time. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so you're, you're kind of in on the, uh, the same uh, uh, fitness fad that I am. Training mate. Training mates. Oh, you've been going to training mates? Oh, Matt, you got to come. Yet to do this. You've got to come. Uh, for those who haven't uh, had their ear bent uh, about this yet, it's a, it's a, a, a circuit gym mm-hmm. where you go from station to station, and the catch is that the trainers are beautiful Australian rugby player men. They're all seven and a half feet tall. They're they're flirty. They're like they're a mile wide. It's insane. Wow. And, and it's so good. It transpires that if they say to you, "Hey, Johnny, run over there and rob that bank," yeah, I, I would do it. You'll do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll do anything they say. And do we think that they're all legitimately Australian? I'm, yeah, I I do. I had my doubts at first. I had my doubts at first, but now I actually believe it. The reason I ask is that I have a friend whose kids go to um, a uh, soccer thing in Griffith Park, mm-hmm. and the uh, and the branding there is that I think it's like it's supposed to be um, English soccer coaches. So you're, it's a similar thing. You're getting you're getting an accent, and it was revealed to me. I have gone. I've taken the kids a couple times, and like. Ogled the hot um, coach, sure. uh-huh. and it was revealed to me that it was a fake accent. And where is the coach from? Uh, the like the Minnesota or something. Oh, yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> you know, the other night uh, we went to the bowl, and uh, and there, like, I wasn't quite sure where our seats were, so I had to ask an usher, and uh, and the usher was like, "Well, you go up the escalator <laughs> no, no. and through the tunnel." And it'll be on your right. And it was just, it was like this wow. weird, like, like, we were, and then make a left at the fallen tree. And, you know, oh, no. And, 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 a, and a gnome will ask you three questions. It was it was just oh. the weirdest, like, and also it was like you're from Memphis. And then, just yeah. admit it. Like, yeah, you turn no. into a swarm of moths. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John Butler, speaking of fake accents, yeah. have you heard? I'm not Irish, by the way. You, <laughs> I'm from Iowa. You're doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you. Did you hear Lindsay Lohan's defense of Harvey Weinstein? <laughs> I, I haven't heard that yet. Oh, my God. I didn't hear it, but I, I, I read enough to go, okay, right. Yeah. T- tell me it's, about I, it. I couldn't even imitate it. If, I mean, she's doing this, like, kind of vaguely, I don't know if you call it transatlantic or what. I mean, she's been living in, I, th- I think, Dubai recently. Mm-hmm. Definitely um, an escort at this point. And we're, no one's saying that, <laughs> weirdly, but, like, I'm, I'm going to say that okay. she's definitely an escort. And... <laughs> 
she occasionally will pop up in the media. They're going to like a club opening in Greece and she'll be interviewed outside and she'll be like, um, I, 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 I have many friends here who uh, support me. So I, I, had to, uh, I support them. She's doing the thing where like she's looking for the word the way one might if they if English was not your first language. Right. Yeah. She's from Long Island. She's yeah. dropped English down to her second language. <laughs> yeah. and, and then at number one, there's nothing. The, at number one, there's nothing or five things, yeah. none of which she actually speaks. Right. Anyway, check oh, it out. Yeah, no, okay, I need to see that. Um, yeah, she's like doing like a Kathleen Turner, sort of. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, I don't understand where. She's also might be doing the thing that I do when I go to France and I like, I have a little bit of French, oh, yeah. but when I don't have the word, um, I just say the American word in a, in a like, Inspector Clouseau <laughs> yeah, yeah, accent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, je me trouve à Paris pour uh, wedding. <laughs> like, it's like, that's not going to make it easier for them to understand yeah. the word wedding. But they appreciate the, yeah. the effort. Yeah. Yeah. I so mean, let's oh. get back to the person with yeah, the real seriously, accent seriously. here. It's, I blame the cold brew, which I was just about to have another sip, and I'm not. Oh, I'm I might drink off. it for you. You should. John Butler, what are you? Uh, what are you watching? What are you? What are you immersing yourself in now, pop culture? Most recently, because I'm in an Airbnb uh, on this trip, and I don't have uh, it has Netflix, but it doesn't have broadcast television. So mm. I'm watching. I watched three seasons of Halt and Catch Fire in a week. Wow! Yeah, which is intense. And I'm now watching The Crown, which I've never seen. Oh, that's good. Mm. So I'm just getting into rock, like catching up on things that I feel are you, obliged to have seen. Yeah. Are you allowed to watch The Crown without your mother right next to you? <laughs> My mum adores the crown. Yeah. She really does. Yeah. Um, she she loves the queen, which is really unusual for an Irish lady. Um, but yeah, she just loves that whole, the, the pageantry of it all. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, those are the two things I'm watching. That's kind of the only culture that I'm taking in, I'll be honest with you. When you're, yeah. uh, when you're at home, when you're in your flat. <laughs> well played. That, well played, Dave Holmes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, in, uh, in Dublin. And you got a Sunday afternoon. You've had, you've had some drinks the night before. Mm-hmm. You're going to sit on the couch for three hours mm-hmm. and watch something. What is it? Well, I spend the first two hours thinking about death. Uh-huh. Um, where we go when we die. <laughs> um, why am I so afraid? Any yeah. conclusions, by the way? We evaporate into dust. Okay. So that's the bad news and the good news, I suppose. I'm, um, I'm worse. I'm ready, to be totally <laughs> honest with you. Fine with it. Yeah. yeah. No, I watch... Um, David Attenborough wildlife stuff helps me. If yeah. I, you know, if I watch a kind of a cheetah eviscerating a deer, oh, yeah, I feel yeah, better. Yeah. So that's I do go to the wildlife show uh, definitely as a restorative thing. Also, I'm massively into sports. I'm really into soccer. So, um, which uh, defies uh, certain stereotyping in our community. But I'm just so into uh, sports. I watch soccer, tennis, rugby, yeah. the whole thing. So Sunday afternoon is a big sports day, mm-hmm. and it couldn't be better timed because you know if you are dealing with kind of existential horror. It really takes your mind off it. Yeah. Just yeah. like the pleasing rhythm of sport. Yeah. They run that way and then they run back that way. And then the new guys have the, have the ball and then the other guys have the ball. And then everybody cheers and you're like, oh, I mm-hmm. think it's going to be okay. There <laughs> is a pleasant Sunday lull to the sound of sports on in the background. Yeah. It reminds me of like my my dad being passed out in a chair, for, you know. Yeah. But, but there is something like soothing about that. And I on do some occasions, in, in, the, in, in the UK in rugby, uh, or in international rugby matches and soccer matches, very often they don't play music with the anthems. So you have 80,000 people in a stadium singing the Irish national anthem or the Marseillaise or, you know, and yeah. it's kind of spine tingling. You know, it's like a just enormous choir. Mm. pledging their allegiance and it's kind of nice you know mm-hmm. were you an athlete as a youth I, st- I played soccer um, through school and college and actually up until now I, 
belonged to a gay football team in Dublin until recently called the Dublin Devils. Um, and I played in my 30s in London and out here in Los Angeles I've been playing, although not in this trip, but I play a very highly organised and very competitive game in Santa Monica on Friday evenings, which is like maybe 50% expat from Europe yeah. and then 50% American and the standard is good and the guys are really nice. So. Soccer as well? Yes. And this is gay or just gay friendly? Uh, gay friendly. Well, they're friendly to me. Well, for which I'm so internally grateful. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a nice bunch of guys who, you know, you get an email on Wednesday and they're like, show up at seven, bring your $20. And it's a really structured and competitive game, you know, but it's yeah. nice. You just dip in and I can, f I can fly in having not been here for six months and I'm on the email list and I can get a game. So, um, yeah, wow. it's enjoyable. It's really nice. Can we I, hear I'll, about the gay, the gay football league that yeah. you're in in Dublin? Too? Yeah, that's all I want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, can I'm, we see pictures? I'm in my mid forties now, so I'm not at the level where I can play uh, competitively like I used to but um, this team belongs to the regular Dublin Sunday League and we're sponsored by Ireland's biggest gay bar The George and so it's really interesting because you're walking out onto a pitch with The George emblazoned on your shirt and you're taking part in a like I mean Soccer is the, the most heteronormative sport in the yep. world. And if there isn't an out uh, premiership soccer player in 2017, which is insane. And mm -hmm. my film relates to that, albeit at the level of rugby. But it's literally emblazoned across your chest. And you're playing tough, no-nonsense guys, uh, you know, from tough neighbourhoods and tough parts of Dublin. And, you know, there's crowds on the sideline. And it's really interesting. It's, it's, oh. a, it's a way of, um, I don't know, you can be retiring about this kind of thing, but it it puts it up to you. It's like, this is who you are. And mm -hmm. it's kind of great in that way, you know, and whatever your standard in terms of relative to other teams in the league, it makes you feel great. You can get beaten five nil, but you still did something cool. Yeah. You know, so I really like it. And, and we also get into the George for free. So, um, well, there you go. That's a That'll nice do touch. It. There yeah. you go. The closest I've come to this is like, I, I used to go to, um, Gym bar, which I don't know if you've <laughs> experienced it, but it's a gay mm. three days ago sports yeah. bar, you know, in West Hollywood, mm. and uh, play flip cup. I do have sort of an inner frat boy that will come out over a drinking game, a, a game of flip sure. cup, a game of beer pong, yeah. sure, bags, a game of asshole, um, and but that's it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it was we were trying to recreate that. I think minus uh, playing the actual sport. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's really interesting. Our our relationship to sport, I think, is really interesting because very often we're excluded from it, uh, or, yeah. or consider ourselves to have been excluded from it yeah. as young children, and we take our social cues because we're hypersensitive, and we tell ourselves that we're not right for it, and so yeah. we create our personality in another corner of the sandpit, and that's who we are. But. I mean, in a way, I was lucky enough to be so confused about my identity for so long that I just continued playing sports, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think now it's kind of great to see, albeit in baby steps, people who are embracing all those disparate sides of their personality and going, no, I can be this and I can be this and I can yeah. be this, you know, like resisting all those definitions. So, right. yeah, I think sports are really interesting conversation for our, our community to have. You yeah. Know? I, I, in my own personal experience, it was just incredible self-consciousness yes. that like stood in my way of like being decent at sports. Yeah. I had a couple of decent sports moments. Like I, I hit, I hit some, I hit some balls for you the bat, you know? Yeah. That's more I, than I, I, I might've thrown a spiral. Nailed, you nailed the terminology. Can I say? Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. But it's just, but being so like being so aware of myself and yeah. like how I came off and whether I was doing the right thing, yeah. it was just like, I couldn't relax into it. But as an adult, yeah. I've played some softball and done like, okay. Yeah. It's very strange. For me, it's, it's challenging. For me, it was, so one's identity. I, I, I am going to win at passing. 
That's mm-hmm. what my childhood was. I am going to win the competition of passing as a straight person. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually, it triggers your competitive instinct in terms of your identity, which is another level of competition within sport. Yeah. Like not only are we going to win the game, but we're going to win the game because I am going to aggressively assert myself as the most heterosexual man on earth. Uh-huh. You know? How early do you, do you remember yourself having that, having that thought or that sort of unformed notion? I think it probably crystallized in my mid-teens, but, I, you know, I knew when I was three, I suppose. Right. Um, uh, but didn't have a name for it other than a, a feeling of difference. And, and, and so by the time I was seven, I was really into soccer. I was like, this is – I'm doing this. I'm so into this. And, uh, and I committed so much to it. But I think your, your self-awareness comes in three stages. Like you get it at the age of three, I think, and then you get it at the age of 15, and then you get it whenever you decide to acknowledge it, you know. Mm-hmm. But once you start putting names on it, it becomes maybe slightly clearer to you, you know. But uh, I always feel like there's more than one moment of realization, you know. The first moment of realization is not is, – is entirely abstract, I think, right. or at least it was in my case, so. Yeah, well, I'd like to hear about the next big moment of realization. Um, after the break, we'll be back with John Butler's um, sexy romantic dating life. Oh, yeah. We are back with John Butler. Hey, John. Hello, people. Yeah. So you were talking about uh, the, um, the the challenge to pass as straight for your whole life. When did you decide to stop uh, doing that? Um, maybe a couple of answers for that as well. I came out late. Um, I never say when because I feel that puts a time mm. scale on those who haven't. And it's interesting in National Coming Out Week how nuanced that discussion can be because I don't think that it is always – necessarily uh, the, the, the correct thing to do for people. I think it's deeply subjective. I think you can come out too early, as I know Dave and I have spoken about before. Mm-hmm. So I never like to say when, but it was like later than my late 20s. So the struggle was for a long time very um, kind of pronounced for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, I'm obviously in so much of a better place now having done yeah. it. But uh, yeah, it's a, you know, that's the struggle of a life, I guess. You know? so what were you telling yourself before that? Like what did you what did you say that you were? I said to yourself. I, I said that I was mad. Yeah, oh, wow. uh, that I was mad, or that I was, um, you know, kind of sexually repressed and unable to uh, have a fulfilling relationship with another human being. Mm-hmm. So it went to a place of, for me, for a period, it was went to a place of celibacy, where it's just like I'm not. I'm just one of those people who's not able to do it. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, like I went out with women and girls, and some of whom are good friends of mine still and uh, kind of mortifies me to think of all those relationships. But, you know, I I wasn't, I don't think I would say that I was consciously kind of using those people. I was really trying to be myself and just failing. And the failure of that is what informs you, I think, in a way, or informed me. So, yeah, the pattern of my 20s was I would describe as sexless euphoria, like large groups of people like drug-fueled nights in clubs yeah. with your 15 friends where mm-hmm. 15 of you go to a house party or and I was living in San Francisco for lots of this 15 of you break into the motel swimming pool and swim at 5 in the morning mm-hmm. and 10 of you go for breakfast and then six of you go back to the garden right. and drink beer and then four of you go to the other place and then you go home alone. Right. Mm-hmm. So – and you've, you've hidden for yeah. the night. And then the nights become weeks and become months and become years and people are coupling up and moving on with their lives and you're like, well, I just need to move country. I need to go to another place and repeat and repeat and repeat. So it wasn't – I wasn't being honest with myself and I also wasn't aggressively pursuing the truth because I kind of knew that it was a blind alley or, or, or that it was just kind of – 
dark and unnameable to me. Yeah. You know? right. So, yeah. And you have in that, aside from sex, all of the elements of relationship. You know, you have yeah. friendship and you have euphoria and you have, you know, you have companionship. Yeah. You just don't – they're not all in the same person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, and they're not, you know, they don't lead toward anything. Yeah. They're just kind of scraps that you pick up. But yeah. also there's plausible deniability. You know, it's like, oh, I'm so drunk or like, you know, there's always plausible deniability in that environment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm a commitment phobe or I enjoy being single or yeah. I was so drunk or yeah, – I'm just a party guy. I'm yeah. a party guy. Exactly. Yeah. What's wrong with being, you know, yeah. that guy, you know, and there's nothing wrong with being that guy providing you're being truthful. Yeah. I mm-hmm. suppose, you know. Yeah, uh, what percentage of those guys are being truthful? I wonder. Yeah. I mean, you have to assume that some people are in that place out of – just a confident sense of being unique. Mm-hmm. And, and if they are, then fair play to them. But it wasn't me, you yeah. know. Um, and were there serious relationships with women in that time? I, I, I suppose the longest one was for a year. Okay. That's um, no joke. Yeah. Yeah, and I really fancied her father. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, which is so awkward. Was that the main draw for that, you? That was the last relationship that I, I – that the, the period of celibacy followed yeah. that. So what are you telling yourself in this relationship? When you are sexually attracted to somebody in the circle, but it's not the person that you're, that you're, that is your primary relationship. Yeah. Like what? Just what? What are the things that you're telling yourself to get through it? Um, what are your? What are your? Um, I suppose. What else would you be doing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is your plan? What is your plan B? What are you? What is the opportunity cost of this? Well, you know, which is a kind of a, cor- a coarse way or a kind of um, cynical way of putting it, but. What else would you be doing? You know, this is all about confrontation of oneself. You know, looking in the mirror, it's interesting to hear you talking about, you know, getting your Madonna CDs sent uh-huh. to New York. Yeah. You know, that moment of arriving at it. You know, I, I came out to my, my family via a letter that I wrote and I was living in New York at the time. Mm-hmm. And it ambushed me. Uh, I, I came home from a bar. It was like four in the morning. I was living in a, a sublet in the Lower East Side. And I sat down, I smoked then, and I sat down on a, on, a, on a pile of phone books outside the apartment to have a cigarette, last cigarette before going upstairs. And suddenly I was crying. Uh, but I was not just crying. I was being assaulted by my own body. Like Oof. my body was, was, was shaking and I was in floods of tears. And I, it was the first time I realized I had run out of road. I was like, there is, you have n- absolutely no alternative now. And I went upstairs and wrote an email to my family and fell asleep. And the phone started ringing because the time difference, you know, it was five hours. Mm-hmm. And the phone started ringing like uh, three hours later. And everything was great, and, and everybody in my life, thankfully, uh, was fine with it. But that gives you an indication of how trenchant and deep yeah. our self-denial can be. Like, we can do this forever. We can do this all day. Like, and especially when you've grown up being hypersensitive about how you're perceived in the world, that's a game you can play forever, and it's a game you can win at as easily as sport, mm-hmm. you know? So I was just like a world champion for a long time until, I, until my body just went, no. Um, and interestingly... A couple of months later, I got urticaria, which is hives, all over my body every single night at 4 a.m. I would wake up, my body alive with these hives. My eyes would close and swelling. My lips would close. Oh, my God. Um, This was after? This is after. And it lasted for one calendar year. And I went to all the rheumatologists and doctors and shamans and everything. And uh, they all said this happens after a traumatic event. It never happens during it because your body is tensed and yeah. you know mm-hmm. so it's fight or flight and uh and um it was basically just triggered by the release of this kind of this traumatic event mm-hmm. you know um and uh, and one year after the day that it started to the day it went away and has never come back 
Wow. That is 100% of our Catholic gay guests on the show, having some sort of physical symptom after coming out. Fully breaking down. Yeah. Yeah. And then the most Catholic thing of all is that I would sit in a rheumatologist's office and he'd go, so has there been any big event in your life recently? Like, <laughs> and, and I'd be like, no. Yeah. Couldn't nope. think of one. Absolutely uh-huh. not. Because I'm fine. Yeah. You know, and he was looking at me and going, okay, you know, your body is exploding. But <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and just shows you don't, you don't, uh, you don't just emerge into the sunlight and, and, and become yeah. this fully, you know, this kind of butterfly. Like you're still a pretty kind of basic version of yourself and yeah. the, the work is in a sense kind of beginning, you know, but, uh, yeah. So what started happening on the sex and dating and love front after you came out? Um, well, the, the, what's interesting to me is what tr- triggered my kind of realization, which was a few, maybe a few years, um, jumping back was, uh, I slept with a police officer, uh, in Houston. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, what? I was making a documentary in Houston with an Irish comedian. We were drinking in a bar late at night and the cops came in to sweep everybody out. And this cop I began talking to and then he was like, well, you, you might want to go for another drink. And I was like, absolutely, you brought me to a strip club. And then I was like, this isn't really for me. And he's like, it's not really for me either. And he drove me back to the hotel. And that was it though. That was So then I was like, okay, now I have some data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this and is what, what year reinforcement. is it? Yeah. I don't know what year that is. Oh, 2004 maybe. Okay. Okay. Certain, but in a rent. Yeah. Okay. So email existed. Did you stay in touch with this person at all? I never saw him again. Never saw him again. No, absolutely. And it was, it, it was, um, it was weird. But then after, you know, after going on the, the road and, and, and kind of establishing who I was, it was a, it was a slow burn, you know, it didn't immediately become like, I didn't have my slutty period right away. Mm-hmm. It was like a while of like kind of trying to figure, figure it out in more like existential terms. Like there yeah. was so much guilt, like, which is absurd, you know, but that's just the reality of who I was and am. So. Can we talk about the slutty period? Well, of course we can. Yeah. Well, where did it take place? Um, it, it took place uh, on a global level. Mm-hmm. And continues to take place on a global level. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, technology has been a great help in that regard. Sure. I, I've always found it really hard to walk into a bar on my own, straight or gay, any bar. I just don't, uh, yeah. I'm not good at it. Um, and uh, I wish I was better, but I'm not. Uh, you know, I do it now and again, but uh, I just find it easier. And the the apps are kind of uh, amazing for that, but they have incredible drawbacks that uh, that maybe I think sometimes outweigh the, the positive aspects. Like, you know? I'm just out of a what has to be described as a relationship with a uh, straight married, an accidental relationship with a straight married older man. Who's a father? Right. Okay, yeah. Let's get the whole story uh, starting now. Yeah. So you uh, you met him on a an app. Yeah. Let's I'm say Grinder. I'm in Dublin. Let's call it Grinder. Um, or it's an app that starts with G and ends with Grinder. Um, <laughs> and you know, I I have rules uh, as we all do about engagement on in these forms. Like, I, no, if there's no photograph, I'm not interested. Yeah. And if the person is married, obviously, I'm not interested. But in Dublin. You know, your radius is like the same 20 guys and, you know, you're just like, oh, for fuck's sake. So I think I just changed the settings and almost immediately got a message from this guy who uh, who was great and, and, and really interesting and came over and he left and I was like, I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. I have just gotten myself into this thing that I didn't mean to get myself into. And, and what did you know about him at that stage? I knew he told me when he, when he was leaving the first time of his circumstances, which is the marriage and the kids who were all – uh, kind of college age boys. And is he mm-hmm. just closeted to his wife or they have an understanding? He's entirely closeted. Wow. 
yeah. And he lives two hours kind of north of the of Dublin uh, with his family, but comes into Dublin for work. Uh-huh. And uh, seven months later, I kind of have just extricated myself from it. And it's a really sobering lesson in what is available to you and how it can hurt you in ways that you shouldn't allow, you know? Seven months is no joke. It's no Seven joke. Seven months is no joke. So right away you knew that there was going to be an emotional component to the physical relationship. And do you know why that was? And I've been thinking about it so much recently. It was because with my sex, I want a, like a side order of the world is stupid and meaningless. I, I want. I don't want seriousness. Mm-hmm. I want an, like grinder or... Any of the apps can be very pecky, yeah. very kind of <laughs> yeah. pouty, very intense. And I'm just like, that doesn't that is not the world as I see it. Yeah. And this guy was one of the few guys I'd met who acknowledged the absurdity of what we were doing and of the world in general. Uh-huh. You know? I mean, if you're a closeted man who has grown up kids and you're not able to come out like you you, you have a keen understanding of absurdity I would say anyway <laughs> but it really matched mine I was like this guy is great because he's funny like that as much as anything was like that rang the bell for me yeah. and that was the thing that was like okay that's trouble mm-hmm. you know and did mm-hmm. you have conversations about like was he ever saying you know I, I would like to have, you know change my lifestyle or was it always just understood his circumstances weren't changing this is what it is yeah that, the, that the, was it. The latter, yeah. And rightly, I have to say. I think this is, you know, I don't want to talk about his story uh, too much because it's not fair, but I yeah. think he epitomized that idea of it not always being the right thing to do, I think. you And listen, it's tragic. Um, you know, you can, your sexual awakening can happen with uh, a person of the opposite sex and it may not be objectively right for you, but you're not at the stage in your self discovery where you know that yeah and then you commit too much and then you have to consider the feelings and situations of others and Mm -hmm. throw that into a stew of kind of who am i and then add 25 years and i can understand completely how somebody is powerless to change themselves you know and then you kind of consider yourself listen i don't have i have to be honest and say i don't have much in the way of guilt about uh, being you know having this relationship with a married guy that's not on me i don't feel but i have such empathy for that position you know, and it's no, it's no joke. Like it's no, this is like deep existential shit that somebody has to deal with. And your position is to take care of, of that. You know, you can't just kind of walk away and go, well, I'm fine. I didn't, I didn't get in over mm-hmm. my head. You've such, I think you have a moral responsibility to take care of, not take care of the person, but take care of the situation, not be mindful, you know? And in this, I imagine if I were in this situation, I would on some level be hoping that I would be the one to sort of – that he would, you know, leave his wife, yeah. be with me. Was there any of that going on for you? I don't know. I mean possibly in the early stages. But do you know what's really interesting apropos of this show, I think, is that I – when I sensed it was getting kind of serious, like I was six weeks or two months into it, I – counseled two different people one was a straight uh, girlfriend of mine and the other was a gay very close friend of mine guy and their responses were so radically different the uh, my girlfriend was like well you have to just knock that one on the head right now and walk away yeah. mm-hmm. because it's dangerous for everybody and yeah. you know and that is good advice and the, the gay man was like we're dogs <laughs> <laughs> It'll burn out. <laughs> yeah. It'll burn out. And, the, and his bigger point was don't attach romantic, don't add romantic weight to this by making some big kind of Heathcliff on yeah. the moors, we can no longer see each other thing. Yeah. Like don't give it that romantic significance. Have sex with this guy until it burns out as it always does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're both 
really good pieces of advice from different places. And um, so, did it burn out, or did did you have to make conscious effort? It did, but it took longer. Then, like, mm-hmm. it, it turns out that the the wick is long. <laughs> so, how does it burn out then? Does it burn out because the emotional component can't really ever yeah. be fully Are realized? Are you just a dog, John Butler? <laughs> yes. Um, I am. Um, but also I think the emotional component can't be realized and you're, you're, you're not allowing yourself – this is the same way of saying that is I don't think you're allowing yourself to develop as friends within a relationship. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're cutting that. You're turning that kind of spigot off. Mm-hmm. And certainly me, like I'm uh, – you know – it had to be kept as transactional as possible in that regard. Like you're only ever meeting in each other's or in the bedroom. So it's not real. Like, and it can't be considered real in those terms. You know, it's not a relationship, but it's not not a relationship, you know. And that is the most ambiguous state of all in a way because you kind of, all the labels that apply to in a relationship or single don't apply there. You have to just kind of be, navigate through the rocks of that, you know. Yeah. So it was weird. It was, it was um, like it taught me an awful lot, uh, about what to stay away from, but also about kind of just you can't just be totally feckless and irresponsible mm-hmm. with 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 these dating apps, but also with anybody that you meet, you know. And I think too often, and I'm guilty of this, is stuff like Grinder, Scruff, or whatever. You can just hook up with people, and 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 you don't know what you don't know what damage is being done or what's being invested. Actually, you yeah. know. Um. So yeah, it's. Had an interesting year. So, yeah, I would say. is this a bit of a palate cleanser being here in LA? New faces on Grinder and Scruff. Yeah, although I'm absolutely um, comp- more disinterested in sex than I've ever been in my life since this. Really? Yeah, my body is just—it's like hives all over again. My body's just like, no, you're not doing that. Wow. Yeah. So I'm just taking I'm taking I'm, a breather. I'm going yeah. to training, mate. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, sweating it a, out. A sexy experience and all, all its own. Well, exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like you just kind of, you know, maybe it's because I, maybe, maybe I'll never have a libido again. Who knows? But you uh, will. I think your libido is going to be fine. Yeah. Let's, let's talk specifically I, about what you look for. What's your type? Um, I like, uh, I do like older guys. Um, I also like, um, older Latino guys a lot. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm kind of laughing cause my next script is a comedy film based on that idea. Um, but yes, I, I'm into definitely into older guys. I'm not really into guys that are younger than me, and I no longer feel apologetic from that for that. But um, I do, I do find that there's more than one coming out. Like you come out as a as a gay man, and your friends are like, "Oh, I'm hooking you up with so and so." And the other like, gay person I know, the other mm-hmm. gay person that I know who, who's 25, and I'm like, "You're not," mm-hmm. yeah. because I have no interest in that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to come out and say, "Like I like bears, and I like older Latino guys, I like older white guys, I like older guys generally," and that is a sometimes is a more significant coming out. They're like, oh, you don't, you're just not into like Twinkie dudes that are the 100% of right. our perception of the gay world. Because mm-hmm. it's more personal. It's more specific to you. It's not just a broad, I'm gay. It's, these are things that turn me on. And yeah, absolutely. And, and they're hardwired into you from such an early age. Like I, uh, I have been ruined forever by Eric Estrada and Chips. <laughs> so it happens at the age of four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here we are like 40 odd years later. And we are we are bearing the fruit of that. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking that the other night watching uh, This Is Us, there was a, a scene of a, of Justin Hartley in a diaper crawling on the ground and his perfect body. And I was like, the, the five-year-olds of 2017 oh, yeah. are going to grow up into, a, a, into gay men with a very specific <laughs> yeah. interest that they can't yeah. quite – 
pinpoint. Yeah, once they feel yeah. safe enough with someone, they're going to be like, "There's this one thing yeah. I'd like for you to do." I don't want you. Weird. I don't want you to go to the bathroom in it. Yeah. Just yeah. could you put on a adult diaper? And, and they probably won't remember why they're into it. And no. then can you also do a five minute monologue explaining <laughs> yeah. uh, your childhood and yes, all of it. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, John, what is the most intense emotional relationship you've had? Whether it was a full commitment or, you know, um, that's a really good question. Uh, I was I was kind of really uh, I was really in love with a guy who wasn't in love with me in my twenties. Mm-hmm. With and I can only now say that it was love. Back then, I just felt so fucking weird around him. Yeah, and nothing ever happened. And uh, this is pre coming out. Yeah, way way before coming out. And was he a close friend? No, he was a guy I worked with, oh. and. I was always kind of like around him and, he, you know, at the office I worked in, he would come by and he was actually married as well, I should say, which is interesting. Um, I mean, paging Dr. Freud. <laughs> but he would, he would walk by my desk and he would kind of ruffle my hair or like hit me on the shoulder with a folder or like he was always like fucking touching me basically yeah. uh, in a way that I, I thought was fantastic. Like I, and I just felt completely fraternal. But my character then, as assembled by me like mm-hmm. assiduously in the years before, was of a loose, drunken Irish guy who would chat the hind legs off anybody and was good in all kinds of companies. So I would, like on Friday night, I'd go to the bar. Uh, this is in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I'd go to the bar with everybody from work and we'd go on and on and on. And that was it. And that was my character. So it didn't require me to break character. That affection being sent out and being sent back all occurred within the kind of yeah. parameters like that, that tracks uh, along with this character. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So th- I, I actually think, although nothing ever happened, I actually think that was the deepest relationship I ever had. And I ended uh-huh. up fictionalizing it in my, my novel, The Tenderloin. Um, and, and that was an act of writing it out of me. I wrote that in, in 2010 and I wrote it because I was like, I need to just excavate this and figure out what the hell was going on there. And I wrote yeah. a novel about, about exactly that, that relationship. So, yeah. I've, I've read interviews with you where you say something that I think is really interesting. That in, in the wake of coming out, like after coming out, after dealing w- with, with that and de- redefining yourself, you uh, became addicted to telling the truth. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I'm fascinated by yeah. that concept of just when you when you have to figure out the truth within yourself, you kind of you, – it gives you a perspective on the rest of the world that you can't shut up about. Yeah. I, I, that's completely true. I got a weekly column in the Irish Times. Uh, I can't remember what year, but around that time. And it was like, here's another thing. Here's another thing that I, <laughs> that I believe. Yeah. Every week, a thousand words. Here's another thing. Here's another thing. And it was like – it was my cold brew. I just – I had to have it. I was like – I was – Becoming myself more and more, the more, and the more eye-watering the truth was, uh-huh. the more I wanted to do it. I was like, I am tired of, I, I just, I guess I realized how many layers I had to peel away. And just, I was, with everything I wrote, I was throwing them away. And and my writing, my professional life was being rewarded for that truth, which is yeah. important as well. Because you, you get the validation, but also you understand that all people want is, in art, is to is to feel something. And they're, what they're feeling is is not their authentic selves, but they're feeling your authentic self. So it's the greatest lesson I've ever gotten really as a writer, I think, is that go for that stuff, you know. And if you can feel it yourself, then they will too. And if you can't, then you're not doing anything valuable. Also, I love that idea of in order for art of any sort to be good, it has to make you feel 
utterly exposed and vulnerable because if it doesn't you're not doing anything of value you know mm-hmm. so my next film is like a fictionalized version of my own kind of fetishization of people um and it, the idea of filming it um, next year and of editing it and putting it out in the world terrifies me oh and that God. terror that makes me know i'm doing the right thing yeah. and it was the same with the last film it, it, it the 4am thoughts are like the ways in which it could be bad or how wrong how much of you are you exposing in handsome devil Oh, it's me, like the, the two lead characters. So it's a coming-of-age comedy set mm-hmm. in a boarding school about a rugby player and a, and a musician who have to share a room together. Um, they're called Connor and Ned. And the first twist, without giving anything away, is that it is, despite our perceptions, it is the rugby player who is gay, yep. the athlete. Um, and that's me. And the other kid is me as well. I was an incredibly pretentious music fan who used words to repel people. Um, so I, I basically cut myself in two and yeah. one half was Connor and one half was Ned and so it was fun to kind of write them into different corners of a room and then bring them back together so yeah. entirely me and I don't think I'm not always it, like it's not autobiography but I, I always consider it to be emotional autobiography which is that the events or the characteristics of the people aren't me but the emotion uh, the emotional truth is mine and that's I wonder, will I ever write anything that doesn't have that? Because you know? mm-hmm. I, I don't know how the way. How can you? Yeah. How can you? Yeah. Why would you? Yeah, it's worth doing and it's worth feeling scared. Like feeling terrified about exposure is, is, is now a, a sensation I'm actively tracking down. Uh-huh. You know, and I love that. It's interesting seeing um, when I first met you, I had just seen Bachelor Weekend and then just watched Handsome Devil this week. Um, and they are such different films. I feel like. There's a swagger to Handsome Devil that that I didn't see before, but mm. I guess the the real recurring theme in both of them is um, kind of that fraternal. It's you know they are about male. There are there are queer elements to it for sure, but it's mm. really just about male friendship. Yeah, I'm I'm obsessed with with male with the value of male friendship uh, w- with gay gay friendship with gay straight or gay ally whatever straight mm-hmm. straight friendship all shades of friendship. But I think. With the LGBT community, I think our stories are sexualized in a way that sometimes isn't helpful. Like, Handsome Devil has a a not-for-children thing on it on Netflix, and I have Mm -hmm. no earthly idea why. And that's insane. It drives me insane because it's a buddy movie. And my next film is a buddy movie as well. And I I just love the tension of, of male friendship. I love the... I love exploring it as a as a as an area that I feel is underrepresented, especially yeah. in our community. I think we get such value out of our our, our friends. We get such comfort uh, from them in a way that ought to be respected. And I don't like the fullest uh, expression of homosexual friendship is friendship. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's not some tragic step short of being fully realized. That's what it is, yeah. and it should be celebrated for that. So, yeah, I think. The next film is certainly about that as well. And um, I think people sometimes kind of maybe interpret that as kind of prudishness or or reluctance for me to write into the area of sex. But uh, it's more out of respect for friendship, I think. Yeah. You know, it's more out of what I want it to be than what it isn't. Yeah. So. John Butler. Oh, John Butler. That was part one of John Butler. Part two (laughs) will be coming. Anytime. Anytime. The door is always open, John Butler. I love this. Thank you very much. God, I feel like I absolutely... 
Spilled my guts. I mean, that's Good. what we brought you here to do. Yeah, that's what we want to send our guests away feeling like. Hey, before we go, uh, we don't have a, a caller question, but we have a, a text question. Let's, let's take it two on. that I'd love to take on with yeah. the help of John Butler. So I'm on a, not to brag, but a text thread with a few friends. Great. Whoa. With a few friends. Um, and one of them, uh, Shira Casp Weiss, if you are a Bitch Sesh fan, you know her as The Lighthouse. If you don't know her, you should go back to the Bitch Sesh feed and search the Shira episodes. She gives real good advice. I asked her if she had a question for the podcast, and her question was something along the lines of, um, you know, she, she uh, I, I don't remember how she phrased it, but the gist of it was, like it, all of her gay male friends seem to not she she has no sort of overlap in music interest with them and all of her music interests are kind of um straight white dude rock mm-hmm. bands she's into Wilco uh, yeah uh, yes for sure and uh and the I, I think all of her she's talking about gay men specifically but mm-hmm. she, she was like how come you guys are all into like the Debbie Gibsons of the world and none of the bands I like and my answer, and you guys can probably speak to this better than I can, was that I don't think it's that any of us don't like those other bands. I think it's that we grew up being told those are the bands we have to like. Right. And whereas, like, going back to my Madonna story, those were the musicians that I knew I wasn't supposed to. So when I finally mm-hmm. could, I'm, a, you know, we're, we're kind of loud about it. Yeah, sure. I actually, I kind of went the other way. I, um, from when I was in, like, early junior high, I gravitated toward – um, like under like underdog rock, mm-hmm. like music that was not dissimilar to what was being played on the radio, but wasn't being played on the radio. So like artists like Marshall Crenshaw or Tommy Keene or um, like even early REM, they, they mm-hmm. got a lot of press, but they never got played on the radio. Yeah. Replacements very much the same. And and it was music that I that I felt like needed me to be its champion. So mm-hmm. I like sort of I gravitated to it, and that was the music that I fell in love with. Yeah, and and it was like that all through high school and college, and I. Uh, I resented the shit that would get played in gay bars. I resented like the the. I mean, I liked some of the pop music, but like the shitty remixes that would get played in yeah. like you know video bars in Boston. I just reflexively hated, which was probably self loathing, mm-hmm. and also just like I do don't I, I do dislike a, a lack of originality. Yeah. Like when it's like when every fucking gay bar has the same beat yeah. playing and it's been playing since 1991. Mm-hmm. Like it's just that kind of bores me. But now it's like. Now I've sort of relaxed on it. And it's like, this is kind of what we gather around. This is our Bon Jovi. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. That kind of music. And it's like, you can fucking fight it, but why? why? Just go have fun. Yeah. Like, it's just the lowest common denominator fun music. I love the Dua Lipa album so fucking much. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that Me is. Too. Yeah. That seems to be the gay album of the year. And it's like, you know what? You're right. This is a great fucking pop record. And I love it. Yeah. I don't know if I answered the question. I don't know I why we. answered it beautifully. Well, I don't know why we like different things. Or if it's just like, that's what we're told that we like. And so it goes from there. Yeah, much of the music that we like and that we that we hear in those bars is isn't patriarchal, you know. It's true. Yeah, and I think that's really valuable. You know, I think those voices. I think that gives us a comfort, and I think it's cool. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's great. I love Wilco too, but sure. um, and I reject the binary of obviously gay music, yeah. um, much as uh, there is straight music. But yeah, but there's room for both of them. I your, think so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's. Um, it feels like music shouldn't be anything that defines you. Yeah, you know? agreed. But it does. It does. For me, it does. Anyway. Yeah. My lack of knowledge about it defines me here on this podcast. No, it really does. You know more than you think. Oh, God. A tiny bit more than you think. 
Um, thank God you got those Madonna CDs sent down to you. Yes. Right? And you know? thank God they're in my garage as we speak. Oh, fantastic. Thank you to Madonna. Mm-hmm. Thank you to uh, everybody here at Earwolf, Colin yeah. Anderson, and Dano. Ben and Wick. Dano. Wickens, Ryan right. on the boards. Uh, ben Wise for the music. Uh, John Butler, thank you so much for being here. The door is open to you at all times. Thank you very much. Don't be a stranger. Earwolf? More like Fearwolf. Get ready to quake in your headphones because Earwolf's movie podcast are talking about horror movies the entire month of October. Listen to How Did This Get Made? The Canon and Kratz Movie Club dissect spine tingling horror classics all month long. And watch out for special spooktacular episodes of Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, The Correct Podcast, and Who Charted? Or should I say, Boo Charted! Subscribe to all these shows and follow along on social media with the hashtag FearWolf. And beware of podcasts that go bump in the night! This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You want to see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season 3 of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.